Welcome to A Common Future, a podcast that presents ethical, sustainable and creative ideas about how we might live and work in a post-pandemic world. A Common Future acknowledges the people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which we live and work and pays respect to elders past, present and emerging. On this episode, we're talking energy. The drama of COVID-19 has all but overshadowed the horrendous bushfires of 2019 and 2020. But as Australia approaches another summer, attention is again being turned to the ongoing issue of climate change and to how the pandemic response and recovery might be used to ramp up renewable energy transitions. Questions of supply and demand, technological adaptation and sustainable workforces surround discussions of green energy and often turn it into fraught territory. Joining me to shed some light on these topics and to look at the potential policy implications of a pandemic response is Dr Joel Gilmore. Joel is Regulatory Affairs Manager at Infigen Energy, an Australian-based renewable energy company, and is an adjunct associate professor at Griffith University's Policy Innovation Hub. So, Joel, thank you for joining me this morning on the third episode of A Common Future. My pleasure. I'm very excited to be here. It's really great to have someone with your sort of breadth of experience uh, to talk about this really crucial issue of energy transitions. But I wonder, before we start, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about how you hey, sort of came across this breadth of experience. You've had a really interesting career from as a science communicator, you know, appearing on the SBS on Channel 10 and and then, you know, working in academia, you've got a PhD in, in, I believe, physics. Yes. And now you're working in the energy sector. I love being diverse. And, you know, I always, when I talk to students, I always encourage them to to, to look for all the different opportunities that are out there because you don't really know where things are going to lead. When I finished my PhD, I became really interested in climate change. And I wanted to work in this field because, you know, is really the most pressing problem facing us all. And obviously I say this in the midst of a global pandemic, but climate change really is as big a problem. And we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, the impacts of of the pandemic on energy policy and and the the situation with renewables. But I wonder before we do that, if you maybe give our listeners a little bit of context about the energy industry in Australia, more generally, where are we at in terms of supply from fossil fuels and renewables um, and any demand changes that we've seen in recent years? The last decade and a little bit has been an incredible transition for Australian electricity and really playing into our strengths as a, as a nation. So maybe we talk about supply first, where we get our electricity from. So if you go back 20 years, nearly all our energy, I actually looked it up this morning, about 98% of our energy was coming from coal and a tiny bit of gas, and then the rest being hydropower, some of the big hydro schemes. And we really, we really are one of the luckiest countries in the world in terms of energy. You know, people used to say you can't walk around outside with kicking over a lump of coal. And so that was obviously a big part of Australia's energy development. But we're also very lucky in that we have incredibly high quality wind and solar resources. So down in the south, you've got the roaring 40s, some of the highest wind speeds in the world. But even here in Queensland, we've got some fantastic wind sites that are only just now being fully developed. And then at the same time, we have world-class solar, some of the highest solar insulation in the world in terms of number of daylight hours and quality of that sunlight. And so we've got the chance for really low-cost solar power. So the upshot of this is we've seen this huge transition um, from, from that coal and gas to renewables. And I just finished publishing a paper on this, which is looking at where the investment in energy has been recently. And 
Believe it or not, on the east coast of Australia, there has been nearly as much investment in energy in the last four years as in the almost 20 years before that. And almost all of that energy, 93%, has been in renewable energy and batteries, big grid-scale batteries. So that transition is really picking up. And so we're now at 25% renewable energy in at least the east coast of Australia. Um, it's a little bit less perhaps on the west coast and some of the other small areas, but that pace of change is really picking up. So on the demand side, then I guess is the other part of the question is what's happening on demand? Well, we've seen some big changes there too. The, the really big one being the uptake of rooftop solar. Uh, we've seen now many, many houses have solar panels on their roofs, uh, particularly Queensland where a really high uptake there. And so it's had a few implications. It's obviously helped to keep the total demand on the grid down because now more people are generating their own power. And it's also helped to shave off some of the evening peak demands. So the hardest time of the day for the electricity grid is the afternoon now when everyone comes home and switches on their air conditioners. Um, and that's only getting worse as more and more people install those air conditioners. And uh, solar panels don't perfectly help with that because obviously the sun is going down at the same time. But there is still enough production that it's actually done quite a good job of keeping that, that peak demand. What does the worst day for the grid look like? Particularly somewhere like Queensland, it's uh, you know famously very hot in the summer and our summers have been getting hotter. Has there been a change in the way people are consuming power in, over the course of the year and in recent years? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we're already starting to see those impacts of climate change in terms of both the what the hottest day looks like, but also heat waves. So the, the absolute worst day, if you're, if you're the energy market operator in Australia, the people are watching the grid and controlling everything, the thing that you hate most is a heat wave. Because if there's one hot day, well, that's pretty bad. Everyone turns on their air con, but you know, it's fine. But if there's two or three in a row, by the third day, everyone is sick of it. And so their air, everybody who has an air conditioner is putting it on. Uh, every... Every, um, every afternoon they're turning on earlier because they just don't want to deal with this. And so that's when you hit the really critical times. And so, yeah, we are seeing that really, that pick, particularly in Queensland, I said that peak demand going up. And that has a lot of implications because if you've got one day a year where you've got this really high demand, that means you need a whole lot of power stations available um, that only run for one hour a year. You need to build enough power lines to ship that power for one day a year. And that proves to be really costly. This cost is borne by everyone who receives an electricity bill, not just those who have air conditioners. And this gets to a key political point. Infrastructure costs make up a significant portion of Australian household energy bills. If you look at the average retail bill of a household, for an average typical household, about a third of your bill is the energy you use. That's the cost of actually producing that energy. So it's actually one of the smaller components of your bill. And the big component, about 45%, is the network cost. So the cost of building the poles and wires to get the electricity from the power stations to the substation in your area, through the streets, and then eventually that wire running into your house. And so nearly half the bill is that. And that's pretty high by global standards. 
But it's also not surprising when you consider just how spread out Australia is. We're a really sprawling country. And so that means we just need... I think we have the longest transmission grid in the world, from all the tip of Cairns all the way down to South Australia and the far west of there. I mean, and then the balance of the bill is sort of the the retail chart, retailer costs, the cost of, you know, reading your meter and sending out your bill, um, some profits for the retailer, some environmental schemes, um, you know, energy efficiency schemes from governments, renewable energy targets, that type of thing. It's a really hard question of whether that network cost is too much. You know, obviously we are a sprawling network, but there is some pretty compelling evidence that go back about 15, 20 years, there was a real concern about reliability particularly in that local grid, you know, your local area. Um, and I certainly remember, if I go back 20 years, there were blackouts quite regularly in summer. You know, the power would go out in the evening. and Yeah, yeah, I remember this as well. Yeah, lightning strikes, trees going off. Whereas, you know, I can count in minutes the number of times the power's gone out over the last five years for me. And that's because there was a real political imperative to invest Flip side of that is that costs money, and now we are pa- still paying back the cost of building all those power lines, and hence a, a material component of the bill probably too high. Right. Um, interestingly, this same discussion is playing out again about supply. So, how how reliable do we want supply to be? You know, are we willing to accept that one year in ten uh, we might not have enough power for that very worst period? Or if, you know, how many extra power stations you want to keep in reserve in case a coal power station trips off if it has a, it has a, a malfunction. That will come at a cost. And we don't really have a good handle, I think, yet on what the real costs of that. You know, everyone would like a more reliable grid. Um, but, you know, h- how much would it actually cost to do? So we need to really engage on that. Consumers, too, you know. We want to get consumers more engaged on choosing how reliable do they want to be. I mean, maybe if I said to you, hey, look, I'll pay you $50 a year if you're willing to turn off your air conditioner for 10 minutes over summer. And most people probably wouldn't even notice 10 minutes having their air conditioner off. Um, So this is the type of market reform that's currently being debated. The effects of the COVID-19 pandemic are still being felt and assessed across all domains of life in Australia and around the world and energy demand and consumption is no different. However, initial data analysis has suggested some unexpected trends. The first pass seems to be surprisingly little. And you know, I say surprising because we really have had a, I think the last podcast uh, the speaker was talking about, you know, this experiment that you'd never want to run, but now that you've run it, what a fantastic experiment around, you know, the way that people move and behave. And, um, in this case, we, we've seen obviously a shift from people working in businesses to working at home. And there's definitely been a shift in where energy is consumed. Businesses are no longer, it's no longer in businesses, it's in residential loads. But the overall impact seems to be fairly small, maybe 2% reduction in total usage, maybe 5% in some areas. Um, and a little bit of shift in Victoria, where residential consumers actually have heating becomes more important for every single house and maybe that's not quite as efficient as in a business so you see some of that shifting by time of day but but overall 
like internationally, there's like in Italy, there was some compelling evidence that there was a quite a material drop in consumption, 5%, 10%. Um, Australia does not seem to have been affected quite as much. Is, do you think that's something to do with the difference between household and, and say, office consumption? People are at home more and they might be consuming more power in their houses, but obviously I guess a bunch of office places have shut down and probably they take up a lot more energy. Yeah, like, and absolutely. And you can actually, you know, with some of the more uh, detailed data, you can see that, that the office consumption has gone down in the middle of the day and the residential consumption has gone up. The rest of our industry, despite the, despite the, the impacts on the economy that COVID's had, have actually remained pretty pretty robust, um, which I think is a, is a testament to how well Australia has really responded and adapted to this new world, yeah. at least in a net impact. I mean, it's probably some interesting questions for people who are working from home now have higher energy bills. But on the flip side, eventually, maybe you, there's a increasing number of people who can work from home and maybe we'll see shifts in Certainly, there's a bunch of people in my work who've talked about, well, maybe I just want to move out from the city and get a nice place where uh, both my, I and my partner have our own office where we can work. We don't need to worry about the commute. Maybe we'll only commute one or two days a week, even when we go back to work into the office. And that would have some interesting implications for where power is consumed, um, for what happens in neighbourhoods, the role of rooftop solar and batteries so it's something we need to think about quite seriously in the longer term these longer term trends aren't only related to lifestyle but also present key opportunities to consider policy reform that has intergenerational significance a recent article written by some academics from the australian national university and published in the conversation putting stimulus spending to the test four ways a smart government can create jobs and cut emissions talks about effective green stimulus in light of what the authors call the COVID-19 recession. The article highlights categories for public investment, such as energy-efficient programs and improvement to public buildings, and renewable energy investments and expansions in power transmission, as key policy areas not only for keeping the surge in renewable investment going, but also for stimulating economic growth. Uh, yeah, I think it's a really great discussion. I, I did read that article and I, I think I hit on some really great points. And, you know, obviously if you cast your mind back six months into the before times, uh, Australia was experiencing the worst bushfires in recorded history, exactly as projected by Garno a decade ago, right on schedule, unfortunately. And it finally felt that we might be ready to act on climate change. And obviously some of that focus has now been swamped by the pandemic. But it does really seem that this is a valuable opportunity. There's a growing consensus that there will need to be a significant economic stimulus package uh, around the world to help to bring us out of COVID. And we don't want to waste this opportunity. So given that the clean energy transition will be quite a capital intensive transition, there's money that needs to be spent upfront to deliver future savings and benefits. It just seems like a perfect match and a way to deliver investment to benefit both individual households, but also broader regional communities and, I mean, and ultimately, and almost without exaggeration, the whole world. 
if we can get this right. The point about regional communities is, is very interesting because obviously the individual household we've spoken a little bit about renew uh, about solar panels and these kind of things, and maybe they're a little bit more quotidian and not as interesting points of discussion. But the regional one is at least politically very pertinent in Australia, especially with the discussion about regional transitions from from fossil fuels. Um, what, what what kind of policy directions do, we, do you think need to happen in order to really make this something that people become excited about and they, they recognise the potential in? Well, I think that the, the real advantage of renewable generation, like large-scale renewables, is that they are generally regional projects, that the, the best wind and solar resource and the land availability is not in the capital city, it's by these regional towns. And so there's a chance to create an awful lot of jobs in those areas and to provide a, a pathway to help retrain and reskill some workers from coal power stations and coal mines, um, I, I think quite quickly into these new industries, if there is that will there. Um, I mean, the, the current, for domestic coal mining, um, the, the, the ABS estimates it's about 10,000 jobs around coal mining at the moment. Um, and in contrast, we currently have about 25,000 jobs in renewables. So two and a half times as many jobs in renewables as in coal mining at the moment. And if we're going to keep meeting our obligations under the Paris Agreement, uh, which is effectively to be net zero emissions by at least 2050, that means we need to have a really rapid uptake of renewables. And done right, the majority of those jobs, and I've seen estimates anywhere from two-thirds to three-quarters, could be in regional areas. And this is a way that we can help. Because uh, I think, I think there's, a, there's, an awful, there's a lot of towns where the town is maybe not built around a coal mine or a coal power station, but it's certainly a heavy part of that town's economic prosperity. So you want to make sure that you do have a way that we can you know, perhaps target some projects to those specific areas and provide a transmission, transition pathway there. I guess that also raises a, a very political question about what about the towns that do rely heavily on coal or were in fact developed around the presence of a mine? Is there? I guess this is one of the impediments to to this kind of transition is public sentiment, particularly from these very particular areas where people, that is their livelihood and that's what they're relying yeah, on. Yeah, and it's, it's the hard one. We, we hear a lot about the idea of a just transition. And I think that's a really critical point that people who've worked their whole lives in a coal power station, and to be clear, coal has delivered incredible benefits to Australia and we shouldn't demonise what it's done to date. It's just that now that we understand the climate science and we have the options for not really any more money. We just need to do it. Um, we want to make sure that people, sort of the, the individual people aren't harmed by what were made, you know, good faith decisions to move into that career. Um, and one thing that really concerns me with this is we all know that all these coal power stations are going to close. Even if you didn't have climate science, the coal mines are going to run out, the coal power stations are going to get old, and we're not going to build new ones. There are other cheaper sources of energy available now. So, so this is a problem we have to deal with sooner or later. And the other side is that 
given that we do have climate science, we know that all of these power stations can have to close over the next 10 to 15 years, maybe 20 years for a few of them. If you wait too long, it means we're going to have to close them all very quickly. And that is going to be an incredibly hard transition. We're going to, obviously from the electricity side, we're going to have to suddenly build a whole lot more power stations and there's a limit to the number of cranes and workers we have in Australia for that. Much better for everybody if we can avoid a boom and bust there. We have sustainable industry. But also for those towns, you know, we need time to and, and government money to help retrain, to provide new skills. If where that's necessary, there's probably a lot of jobs that can be transitioned straight over. Um, you know, there are skilled people who just, you know, it's just a matter of applying the skills in a slightly different context. Um, so having a little bit more of a measured view about having a climate policy that would gradually decarbonise as quickly as we can, but no quicker, um, decarbonise the grid and provide a, a way to transition, I think is really important. And again, COVID seems like a perfect opportunity to do that. While there is plenty of evidence and argument for committing fully to this transition, renewables in particular are still subject to a significant amount of criticism and controversy, both politically and in the media. One of the more recent examples was Michael Moore's 2019 documentary, Planet of the Humans, which criticised renewables for not being as sustainable as Moore thought they were, regarding the rare metals they're made of, the fossil fuels required for their production, and the relative lack of recycling systems to account for their degradation. While many of his claims and sources are dubious, Moore does stress the need to reduce consumption more than anything. Which begs the questions, which points that he makes are valid, and what are the most feasible renewable energy sources in the long term? It's hard, right? Because the spirit of the movie, you know, you, you want to have this discussion around what is really sustainable in the long term. And humans have a bad history of kicking the can down the road and someone future will figure it out. And we don't want to do that now, particularly at a time where we're about to launch probably the biggest transformation in the last couple of hundred years in terms of how we're going to, to change the way we use energy and transport and all of these things. But you also want to be really clear on the facts and you don't want to let perfect be the enemy of good. So, I mean, one of these claims is around this idea that renewables just can't replace fossil fuel, that you can't maybe run a, a system on 100% renewables. I mean, that's just, it's just not true. You know, I was involved in a study with the Australian Energy Market Operator nearly a decade ago now, uh, looking at a 100% renewable grid for Australia. And the outcome of that was, yeah, it's doable. Um, it might cost a little bit more, but as mentioned earlier, you know, the cost of energy is only one comparatively small part of your bill. And that study actually has just been updated, in a sense, um, with, with some work that um, was published uh, just this week around what are some different pathways for the grid in Australia. And one of those pathways is something that I've been pushing for for a long time is a a step change scenario where you really commit to decarbonising and what would that look like? And it gets down to, I think, maybe not, not zero emissions, but maybe 10% of where we were previously by 2040. And there are no fundamental barriers to doing that through a mix of wind, solar, batteries, pumped hydro, those firming technologies. So 
you know, and if we can engage everyone on energy efficiency and maybe that demand response, being able to be a bit more flexible with our usage and getting paid for that, the costs probably aren't much more than where we are today. Um, but, but it's also true that, yeah, there are expensive rare earth elements in batteries and wind farms require mining, which is generally has negative environmental impacts, but so does almost everything we do. And so I think the key thing is these are much, much lower emissions than coal mining. And it's much, much lower environmental impacts than coal mining or coal production. So at least for now, this is the right strategy. It probably is good. I know that a, um, a lot of the battery manufacturers are starting to think very seriously about recycling. And from the design perspective, how can I design a battery to make it as simple as possible to recycle down the track? And I think that's very important. But it's also not, the batteries we often talk about have like a 10 to 15 year life, um, even in electric cars, for example. But that's more about, like in your phone, you know, over time, the battery sort of gets lower and lower in terms of its capacity. But it doesn't mean it's useless. And I've heard some really interesting suggestions that in a decade, you're going to have a lot of electric vehicles where the battery is probably not enough to, you know, to give you the 500 kilometers you really want out of an EV perhaps, but they'll be perfectly good to take out of the electric vehicles and stack up to use in your house. You know, it would be almost free then to have this extra battery storage. I put another few solar panels on my roof and now I've got continuous energy. Um, that type of way that it's reuse, not just recycle. Mm, that's very interesting that on the Common Future website, the, we published recently a video about um, the circular economy and particularly with relation to electric bikes. And that's something that there's a, uh, a place in Logan called Substation 33 that does exactly that. They take old batteries, bunch them together into battery, battery packs, and you can actually use them to power an electric bike for a while. Brilliant. So, yeah, like, I think it's... Yeah, I mean, obviously a lot of the data in um, Michael Moore's film was just out of date in terms of the carbon embodied in these projects and the payback period, you know. And so the, the efficiencies and costs assumptions of solar panels, I think you had a very low efficiency number, 8% or something in there, whereas most solar panels are now 20, 25% efficiency. And in a lab, 40% or even 50% efficiency. So... I mean, I guess the subtle point is we often talk about efficiency, but it almost doesn't matter. A solar panel that was only 1% efficient might be perfectly great if it comes in the form of a can of paint that you just paint on the outside of your house. Um, if it costs no more than a can of paint, but it would also generate electricity and these type of ideas are in the lab at the moment, then maybe, maybe that's a great option. We want to continue to innovate, and I'm sure we're going to see massive innovations in our technology. Yeah, and I think it's easy to levy criticism against that when it's a sort of abstract long term, but obviously the short term, as you've drawn attention to, this is the best way forward that we have, and there's a lot of opportunity in it. And, and we should be excited um, that now we're... I think we should be really excited that we're now debating whether solar is better than wind or worse than wind and the role of batteries and the environmental impacts. That is a success story. These technologies are now so mainstream that we have to start thinking about these kind of second order issues. Um, 
it's something we see with rooftop solar. Um, South Australia as a region has a success story in terms of rooftop solar. It's now got so much solar that there is actually times in the near future where all of the demand in South Australia might be provided by rooftop solar panels. The entire state. Now that is, is a, a huge, amazing outcome for the renewable industry and for climate change. But it also has side effects because generally we can't control people's rooftop solar panels. And so if you're in a situation where they're supplying all of the power, well, what happens if you turn off your toaster or your kettle? Now there's too much power. Do we need to send somebody out to kind of put a blanket over their solar panel for 10 minutes until the next toaster comes on? So there's some talk now about we need to actually get those solar panels and those households to engage more that, you know, we might need to, at critical times, turn down some solar because now there's too much. Um, and I think, you know, that, that's probably an uncomfortable conversation to have. But we should see it, again, as a success, that solar is now grown up. And we want to know as adults, we have to take on a few more responsibilities um, because now they're the provider. That's where we get all the power from. And so we need to engage with that. And I think once we get batteries in and if this COVID transition, you know, if we can fund more batteries and behind the meter, then we deliver more value. There's lots of opportunities there for a really engaged society where we're all part of the solution. That's really fascinating. We might have to, to wrap it up about here, I'm afraid. But I wonder before we do, if you might be able to point listeners in the direction of any resources that they might be able to, to follow up with some of the stuff that we've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the green stimulus is hard because it's such an evolving space. Um, I enjoy reading Renew Economy as a blog. I think it's, it's a great way to keep up to date with the latest information. Uh, if you want more climate change and broader carbon as well as the green transition, uh, Carbon Brief is a pretty great um, blog and site. Um, it's a little bit dry, <laughs> uh, but you know if you're interested in the policy side of things, it's excellent. I also really enjoyed a podcast recently from Arena, which is Australian Renewable Energy, and now I can't remember the NDA, Network Australia, Arena. Great, great organisation. Uh, they did a podcast, Rewired, and the third season came out just recently. And I think it had some really interesting comments around what this transition will look like for Australia and some of the key challenges. And the last one is I read a really interesting report recently from ClimateWorks that published a report around what would a, a full transition of our economy look like around not just electricity, but manufacturing and transport. And well, I think that's really exciting. There is a plan for how we could do this. So. Those are some things that I've been reading lately. All right. Well, we'll try and provide some links for, for people to follow up with. And Absolutely. For now, um, thanks so much for joining us, Joel. This has been a great discussion. Thanks so much. My pleasure. For more episodes of A Common Future, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, or iHeartRadio. A Common Future is a digital media channel for engaging writing, film, and audio that considers ethical, sustainable, and creative approaches to living and working beyond the COVID-19 pandemic. Take a look at a commonfuture.com.au.